calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is of gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello, and welcome to this episode of CFA Institute's Take 15 series. I am Dr. Michael McMillan, Director, Ethics and Professional Standards at CFA Institute. Today, at the second annual Middle East Investment Conference in Abu Dhabi, I am joined by Kevin Kajiwara. Kevin is the Director of Global Markets for the Eurasia Group. In this capacity, Kevin focuses upon geopolitical risk, trends, and their implications for financial markets. Kevin, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Well, let's start off with how do you view and define geopolitical risk? Well, for us, we're looking at how political risk is going to impact uh, corporate and market outcomes. So geopolitical risk can be measured in a number of different ways, but it is a state's ability to withstand shocks, whether they be external shocks or internal shocks, man-made shocks, uh, natural shocks, um, you know, and, and, and how resilient uh, a government and its institutions are to those, uh, to those uh, shocks and how much risk they are actually going to produce themselves uh, in, in, in the global marketplace. So while it's impossible to predict when a giant earthquake is going to hit uh, Japan, it's impossible to predict when a Tunisian street vendor is going to set himself on fire and sort of set off a string of, uh, of protest movements. Um, what we can measure is a country's abilities to uh, withstand these shocks, rebuild from these shocks, deal with these shocks, and bring normalcy to the global marketplace, or whether they are not going to be able to do that, and they're going to generate a lot more uncertainty, a lot more instability, uh, and the like. So uh, what country, countries, or regions would you, uh, do you think are most susceptible to geopolitical risk right now? Well, interestingly, uh, traditionally, it had been the emerging markets that had been the biggest drivers of political risk. But I think the lesson that was learned from the global financial crisis is that developed markets were uh, as well. The United States got, in, got involved in uh, corporate America and in the marketplace in an unprecedented fashion, right, um, by the, with the takeovers of, of Citigroup and Detroit and, you know, deciding that Lehman Brothers would fail, Bear Stearns would get sold for $2 a share, uh, and AIG would get taken care of in its way. So, um, and now you're looking at what's happening in the, in the debt and fiscal and banking crisis that you've got in Europe. Uh, it is a big political story between Germany and the other core countries and the periphery states. Um, but that is not to say that the emerging markets aren't still drivers of, uh, of, of political risk. Certainly, you and I today are sitting here in, in, in Abu Dhabi. We are in the heart of the Middle East, um, where there is an ongoing and continued conflagration going on on a state-by-state -state basis. I think that that's going to continue for some time. But the reality of it is, is that as we look forward to the next 20 years or so, 
the single biggest new and emerging player is going to be China and how China deals with its own internal challenges and how China reacts to the external challenges of the world is going to be the big story uh, of the next 20 years. One term I've heard you mention a number of times is state capitalism. And how does state capitalism apply as a result of what has happened from the financial crisis? How has state capitalism grown as a result of the financial crisis? Well, state capitalism has grown not just as a function of the, of the financial crisis. One manifestation of it growing of the, of the financial crisis is the developed world injecting itself into its own, uh, into their own economies in the way that I just mentioned with regards to the United States in the, in the wake of. Uh, uh, in the wake of the financial crisis. But the other, the other dynamic here is the relative rise of the emerging markets as being the drivers of, uh, of global growth um, going forward. These are states that traditionally are much more involved via state-owned enterprises, via their, via their North, um, national oil companies, uh, very state-associated private uh, national champions, um, as well as sovereign wealth and other investment vehicles. Um, they are much, the, 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 the political world and the commercial world are much more intertwined. Um, and so, you know, the concern to the global marketplace is, is that what's driving and what's motivating their decision making isn't just commercial realities, is isn't just um, commercial competition, it is a political agenda um, a, a, as well. That is, in some cases, true, in some cases, it's less true. It's our job to try to cut through where those differences are and help our uh, clients take, take advantage of the anomalies that are therefore created by that. Okay. I've heard you talk about the G7, the G20, and then you've talked about or used this term the G0. Can you explain that a little bit well, more? Well, for years, the G7 was the dominant uh, sort of uh, you know, political body, um, in the, in political and economic body in the world, uh, led by the seven largest, uh, seven largest or most powerful economies in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, it used to be that you would have a global currency crisis of some sort. You'd get five of these countries in a room together, and they would come out and decide, and all of a sudden you've got an accord on something. Um, then you have moved in the wake of the G20, uh, I'm sorry, in the, in the wake of the financial crisis and, um, and the rise of some of these emerging markets. Other, other countries have, had, have uh, demanded and have gotten a seat at the table. They've been the first uh, ones out of the gate in terms of uh, resuming global growth and their drivers of global growth and their big countries um, and all of a sudden you've got 20 people around the 20 countries around the table but they are at vastly different levels of development they've got vastly different political and economic uh, values that they are uh, that they are pursuing and as a result trying to get them to agree on anything uh, trying to get them together for the photo op at the G20 is a is a very very tough uh, tough order so what happens is is that it doesn't become um, something that lubricates the wheels of global politics. It's something that sticks the wheels of global uh, global politics. It's very difficult um, to to necessarily get anything uh, get anything done. And the institutional framework with which they have to operate, and 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 the architecture that they have to operate within to express these different uh, political and economic values um, is a relic of the post-war uh, period. And so they're inefficient conduits of, uh, of getting things done. As, and, and what's happening, therefore, is you get this abrogation of, of leadership. People start to do what uh, everybody kind of looks out for themselves in a way because there isn't a cohesive forum for them to, uh, to, to get things done. Great. Thank you. Um, and for, from an investment perspective, what are the key political risks that investors globally need to focus upon over the next three to five years? 
Well, I, I think that um, you know a lot of it. A lot of it has to do with you know, is Europe going to be successful in getting out of this uh, crisis, or is the you know are, is what was formerly the unthinkable, which is going to be sovereign default within the eurozone, going to occur? I tend to think yes, uh, particularly particularly in the uh, in, in, in the um, example with the example of Greece. But when that happens is going to be one of the big open uh, open questions that we need to to try to distill down. Um, what happens here in the uh, in the Middle East, and how prolonged this period of individual country instability is going to be? How does military action play out? How does the rise of Iran play and play into all of that? These are going to be uh, these are going to be some of the, the critical stories. But again, I will go back to you know the fundamentally big picture that regardless of all of these temporal issues that occur, you know is, is going to be. You know, how China, how China and the U.S.'s relationship, the single most important bilateral relationship in the world, how does that, um, how does that play out? Um, you know, we're going to be watching uh, these developments very carefully. So we've heard about the BRIC countries. So how, what is the relationship going to be like between Russia, India, and China over the next five years? Well, I, for one, dislike the BRIC term immensely. Okay. Uh, it was a very, very convenient and it was a very market-savvy way to raise the awareness of the large emerging markets that are growing. But these countries are very, very different. I mean, it's, it, it, is, it is impossible to put China and look at it against, uh, against Russia and think that you're thinking about two countries that ought to really be put into the same, into the same box. In my view, the biggest problem, though, with the BRIC report, and when Goldman Sachs issued it, it was a revolutionary report and it served a purpose, but it looked at the economic development trends of these four, uh, four countries and projected them out over 50 years. That was an interesting exercise. But in my view, the fatal flaw of that report was that essentially it, it, looked, it straight-lined the political trajectories of each of those countries. And the problem is, is that if you look back in each of those countries 50 years, there's absolutely no precedent to suggest that their political systems are going to look exactly like they do now, 50 years from now. So it's watching the evolution of these, um, of these political systems that's very, very important. So Brazil has a robust, multi-party democracy um, where even the extreme political left, which has now been in power, in, um, uh, uh, it, it can't really be described as extreme left anymore. It's a pretty mainstream you know, uh, a liberal party that that uh, that now runs um, uh, now holds the presidency in Brazil. China has a very robust uh, succession system in place, um, and you know, uh, Hu Jintao and 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 Wang Jiabao are about to are heading toward the ends of their of their terms. We already know who the replacements are going to be. Uh, they've already bought in and have been part of the formulation of the 12 five-year plan. You kind of know where China, where China is going politically over the, at least the next five years. Russia, as long as Putin remains healthy, um, he is, you know, I think R Russia is a politically pretty stable place. The problem is, is that nobody knows what Russia looks like after Putin goes. Nobody knows when Putin's going to go because he's going to run for president here again, most likely, with the way that the... Uh, the constitution is currently set up. He could be in power in Russia well into the uh, into the 2020s. So you know, but you never know when that's going to come to an end, and you never know what's going to replace it because there's not an institutional framework really to um, to to sort of suggest what that's going to look like. So what about the government in India? Well, India is a very unique political system. 
Um, and you know, we, we see the constraints at the uh, at the national level. There's an old saying that um, you know that things get done and, and 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 things work in China because of the Chinese government, and that they work and get done in India in spite of the Indian government. That's a little bit of a that's a little bit of an oversimplification. But I think what people investors really need to do is they need to start looking beyond national politics. They have to look lower down. They have to look at state and local politics because this is where things get done. Um, and there are certain states in India that are very dynamic with very dynamic leadership that are, are that are creating environments for um, for global business uh, to be able to you know to be able to to get business done, be able to get factories built, to get the infrastructure in place. Um, that ne doesn't necessarily always reflect some of the limitations that are produced at the uh, at the national level in India. So, so India is a complex place that needs to be looked at uh, below uh, the, the sort of the top the top layer. Good. Um, right now, Japan is going through a huge disaster as a result of the earthquake, the tsunami, uh, the leak in the nuclear reactor. Five years from now, what is, where do you think Japan will be? I think Japan five years from now is going to look much as it does today. There's no country in the world that is probably as prepared to to deal with a crisis of this uh, of this nature as um, as is Japan, both in terms of the infrastructure that they have put in place to deal with these types of things, um, to just the sort of uh, the national body politic and the way that the people um, respond to their government, respond to each other, and so on in a in a crisis like this. I think it is it is it is. It's very telling that you will see in the Chinese uh, blogosphere, um, a, um, which, which, which rarely says anything positive about Japan, is demonstrating a great deal of appreciation and respect for the way that the Japanese people have responded to their own crisis, that there is no looting, there is no, you know, people stand on lines and they wait for things and they, and they, and they deal with this crisis in an, orderly, uh, in an orderly fashion. So Japan's ability to spring back from this is, is, is formidable. Um, having said that, Japan has got big structural problems going forward down, down the line, but over the next, you know, the next five years they are going to rebuild from this, they've got the resources to do so, um, they've got the wherewithal to do so, and they um, have got the institutions with which to uh, uh, with which to do it. So you know it's going to be it's going to be kind of back to business as usual um, with these big looming problems that are that are out there down the road. But you know it'll probably look a lot like it did the day before the earthquake. Okay, great. Last question is the Middle East. Right now we're seeing a lot of political turmoil in many countries in the Middle East, um, in Bahrain, in Yemen, um, Egypt. How do you think this political turmoil will play out over the next three to five years? Well, obviously some of these, uh, some of these issues are going to settle themselves one way or the other. Some of them are uh, more predictable than others. We're going to have the nascent start of a of a, of a messy democracy um, uh, in Egypt. Um, it's too early to tell exactly what the outcome is going to be in Libya. It looks like the regime, uh, the current regime in Yemen is not going to last through the end of this, uh, this year. Um, and uh, I believe that, uh, that, that you know, changes are probably afoot of some sort in, in Bahrain, but probably not the, uh, the departure of the, uh, uh, of, the ruling, of the ruling family. But again, the big issue in the Middle East is how these countries keep the narrative that they've had with their people for the last 
you know, whatever the case, however long any given regime has been in, 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 has been in power. And when they start to lose that narrative, is when things start to get dicey. And the second, the second key inflection point is when you have a succession that is coming up or being prepared for that um, that is untransparent. It isn't bought into by uh, by the people, or isn't viewed as as legitimate in some sort of way, or that it's being enforced on them. This was happening in Egypt uh, as Mubarak was getting very, you know, was was clearly in poor health. It was they were softening the ground and getting ready for the uh, assumption of power of of his son Gamal Mubarak. Um, and uh, similarly in uh, similarly in Egypt, similarly in Tunisia, similarly in Yemen. Uh, these uh, these were all coming to inflection points in the leadership uh, succession issue. Um, I think the biggest concern for the region really ought to be Saudi Arabia over the over the longer term because um, Saudi Arabia today is very stable, especially with oil prices where they are. Very very stable place. King Abdullah uh, though is getting is getting old. He spent uh, three months of the last year in in New York um, as well as in Morocco in poor health. Um, and uh, you know he, he he returned to Saudi Arabia, but he's not going to be around forever. And he is a known entity, and he's a and he's a relative reformer. Um, but uh, you know power is going to pass to his uh, to his brothers at some uh, at some point. But these guys are are, are also quite um, quite elderly, not in the best of health. And then you get a very big question mark because for the first time, you know really you're going to have a a generational change in power, and there's no set formula for exactly how that, 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 uh, that transition is going to occur, whether there's going to be sort of internecine warfare within the family over how that, uh, how that takes place. And you have to remember there are relative reformers and relative hardliners uh, with, with, you know, within that very large family with a lot of different constituencies in play. So that is going to be a tense moment um, uh, from the international perspective. And so these are the types of dynamics that we need to watch here in the, uh, in the region. Kevin, thank you very much for your, your geopolitical views and, and common insights on the trends that we can expect to see over the next three to five years. My pleasure. And thank you, viewers, for joining us. To browse our collection of other multimedia products, visit us online at cfawebcast.org. Copyright 2011, CFA Institute. No part may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, electronic, mechanical, recording, or otherwise, without the express prior written permission of CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.